Part five of Common Sense by Thomas Paine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the present ability of America with some miscellaneous reflections. I have never met with a man, either in England or in America, who hath not confessed his opinion that a separation between the countries would take place one time or another. And there is no instance in which we have shown less judgment than in endeavoring to describe what we call the ripeness or fitness of the continent for independence. As all men allow the measure, and vary only in their opinion of the time, let us, in order to remove mistakes, take a general survey of things, and endeavor, if possible, to find out the very time. But we need not go far. The inquiry ceases at once, for the time hath found us. The general concurrence, the glorious union of all things, prove the fact. It is not in numbers, but in unity, that our great strength lies. Yet our present numbers are sufficient to repel the force of all the world. The continent hath, at this time, the largest body of armed and disciplined men of any power under heaven, and is just arrived at that pitch of strength in which no single colony is able to support itself, and the whole, when united, can accomplish the matter, and either more or less than this might be fatal in its effects. Our land force is already sufficient, and as to naval affairs we cannot be insensible that Britain would never suffer an American man-of-war to be built while the continent remained in her hands. Wherefore, we should be no forwarder an hundred years hence in that branch than we are now. But the truth is, we should be less so, because the timber of the country is every day diminishing, and that which will remain at last will be far off and difficult to procure. Were the continent crowded with inhabitants, her sufferings under the present circumstances would be intolerable. The more seaport towns we had, the more we should have both to defend and to lose. Our present numbers are so happily proportioned to our wants that no man need be idle. The diminution of trade affords an army, and the necessities of an army creates a new trade. Debts we have none, and whatever we may contract on this account will serve as a glorious memento of our virtue. Can we but leave posterity with a settled form of government, an independent constitution of its own? The purchase at any price will be cheap. But to expend millions for the sake of getting a few vile acts repealed, and routing the present ministry only is unworthy the charge, and is using posterity with the utmost cruelty, because it is leaving them the great work to do and a debt upon their backs from which they derive no advantage. Such a thought is unworthy of a man of honor, and is the true characteristic of a narrow heart and a peddling politician. The debt we may contract doth not deserve our regard, if the work be but accomplished. No nation ought to be without a debt. 
A national debt is a national bond, and when it bears no interest, is in no case a grievance. Britain is oppressed with a debt of upwards of one hundred and forty millions sterling, for which she pays upwards of four millions interest, and as a compensation for her debt she has a large navy. America is without debt and without a navy, yet for the twentieth part of the English national debt could have a navy as large again. The navy of England is not worth at this time more than three millions and a half sterling. The first and second editions of this pamphlet were published without the following calculations, which are now given as a proof that the above estimation of the navy is just. The charge of building a ship of each rate, and furnishing her with masts, yards, sails, and rigging, together with a proportion of eight months' boatswains and carpenters' sea-stores, as calculated by Mr. Burchett, Secretary of the Navy. For a ship of one hundred guns, pound sterling, thirty-five thousand five fifty-three. Ninety guns, twenty-nine thousand eight eighty-six. Eighty guns, twenty-three thousand six thirty-eight. Seventy guns, seventeen thousand seven hundred ninety-five. Sixty guns, fourteen thousand one hundred ninety-seven. Fifty guns, ten thousand six hundred six. Forty guns, seven thousand five hundred fifty-eight. Thirty guns, five thousand eight hundred forty-six. Twenty guns, three thousand seven hundred and ten. And from hence it is easy to sum up the value, or cost rather, of the whole British navy, which in the year 1757, when it was at its greatest glory, consisted of the following ships and guns. Six ships, a hundred guns. Cost of one, thirty-five thousand five hundred and fifty-three. Cost of all, two hundred and thirteen thousand three hundred and eighteen. Twelve ships of ninety guns. Cost of one, twenty-nine thousand eight hundred and eighty-six. Cost of all, three hundred and fifty-eight thousand six hundred thirty-two. Twelve ships of eighty guns. Cost of one, twenty-three thousand six hundred and thirty-eight. Cost of all, two hundred and eighty-three thousand six hundred and fifty-six. Forty-three ships of seventy guns. Cost of one, seventeen thousand seven hundred and eighty-five. Cost of all, seven hundred and sixty-four thousand seven hundred and fifty-five. Thirty-five ships of sixty guns. Cost of one, fourteen thousand one hundred and ninety-seven. Cost of all, four hundred and ninety-six thousand eight hundred and ninety-five. Forty ships of fifty guns. Cost of one, ten thousand six hundred and six. Cost of all, four hundred and twenty-four thousand two hundred and forty. Forty-five ships of forty guns. Cost of one, seven thousand five hundred and fifty-eight. Cost of all, three hundred and forty thousand one hundred and ten. Fifty-eight ships of twenty guns. Cost of one, three thousand seven hundred and ten. Cost of all, two hundred and fifteen thousand one hundred eighty. Eighty-five sloops, bombs, and fire-ships, one with another. Cost of one, two thousand. Cost of all, one hundred and seventy thousand. Total cost, three million, two hundred and sixty-six thousand, seven hundred and eighty-six. Remains for guns, 
233,214. Cost of all, 3,500,000. No country on the globe is so happily situated or so internally capable of raising a fleet as America. Tar, timber, iron, and cordage are her natural produce. We need go abroad for nothing, whereas the Dutch, who make large profits by hiring out their ships of war to the Spaniards and Portuguese, are obliged to import most of their materials they use. We ought to view the building of fleet as an article of commerce, it being the natural manufactory of this country. It is the best money we can lay out. A navy, when finished, is worth more than it cost, and is that nice point in national policy in which commerce and protection are united. Let us build. If we want them not, we can sell, and by that means replace our paper currency with ready gold and silver. In point of manning a fleet, people in general run into great errors. It is not necessary that one-fourth part should be sailors. The terrible privateer Captain Death stood the hottest engagement of any ship last year, yet had not twenty sailors on board, though her complement of men was upwards of two hundred. A few able and social sailors will soon instruct a sufficient number of active landmen in the common work of a ship. Wherefore, we never can be more capable to begin on maritime matters than now, while our timber is standing, our fisheries blocked up, and our sailors and shipwrights out of employ. Men of war of seventy and eighty guns were built forty years ago in New England, and why not the same now? Shipbuilding is America's greatest pride, and in which she will in time excel the whole world. The great empires of the East are mostly inland, and consequently excluded from the possibility of rivaling her. Africa is in a state of barbarism, and no power in Europe hath either such an extent of coast or such an internal supply of materials. Where nature hath given the one, she has withheld the other. To America only hath she been liberal on both. The vast empire of Russia is almost shut out from the sea, wherefore her boundless forests, her tar, iron, and cordage, are only articles of commerce. In point of safety, ought we be without a fleet? We are not the little people now, which we were sixty years ago. At that time we might have trusted our property in the streets, or fields, rather, and slept securely without locks or bolts to our doors or windows. The case now is altered, and our methods of defense ought to improve with our increase of property. A common pirate twelve months ago might have come up the Delaware and laid the city of Philadelphia under instant contribution, for what sum he pleased, and the same might have happened to other places. Nay, any daring fellow in a brig of fourteen or sixteen guns might have robbed the whole continent and carried off half a million of money. These are circumstances which demand our attention and point out the necessity of naval protection. 
Some, perhaps, will say that after we have made it up with Britain, she will protect us. Can we be so unwise as to mean that she shall keep a navy in our harbors for that purpose? Common sense will tell us that the power which hath endeavored to subdue us is of all others the most improper to defend us. Conquest may be effected under the pretense of friendship, and ourselves, after a long and brave resistance, be at last cheated into slavery. And if her ships are not to be admitted into our harbors, I would ask, how is she to protect us? A navy three or four thousand miles off can be of little use, and on sudden emergencies none at all. Wherefore, if we must hereafter protect ourselves, why not do it for ourselves? The English list of ships of war is long and formidable, but not a tenth part of them are at any one time fit for service, numbers of them not in being, yet their names are pompously continued in the list, if only a plank be left of the ship, and not a fifth part of such as are fit for service can be spared on any one station at one time. The East and West Indies, Mediterranean, Africa, and other parts over which Britain extends her claim, make large demands upon her navy. From a mixture of prejudice and inattention, we have contracted a false notion respecting the navy of England, and have talked as if we should have the whole of it to encounter at once, and for that reason supposed that we must have one as large which, not being instantly practicable, have been made use of by a set of disguised Tories to discourage our beginning thereon. Nothing can be farther from the truth than this. For if America had only a twentieth part of the naval force of Britain, she would be by far an overmatch for her, because as we neither have nor claim any foreign dominion, our whole force would be employed on our own coast, where we should, in the long run, have two to one the advantage of those who had three or four thousand miles to sail over before they could attack us, and the same distance to return in order to refit and recruit. And although Britain, by her fleet, hath a check over our trade to Europe, we have as large a one over her trade to the West Indies, which, by laying in the neighborhood of the continent, is entirely at its mercy. Some method might be fallen on to keep up a navy force in time of peace, if we should not judge it necessary to support a constant navy. If premiums were to be given to merchants to build and employ in their service ships mounted with twenty, thirty, forty, or fifty guns, the premiums to be in proportion to the loss of bulk to the merchants, Fifty or sixty of those ships, with a few guardships on constant duty, would keep up a sufficient navy, and that without burdening ourselves with the evil so loudly complained of in England, of suffering their fleet, in time of peace, to lie rotting in the docks. To unite the sinews of commerce and defense is sound policy, for when our strength and our riches play into each other's hand, we need fear no external enemy. In almost every article of defense we abound. 
Hemp flourishes even to ripeness, so that we need not want cordage. Our iron is superior to that of other countries, our small arms equal to any in the world. Cannon we can cast at pleasure. Saltpeter and gunpowder we are every day producing. Our knowledge is hourly improving. Resolution is our inherent character, and courage hath never yet forsaken us. Wherefore, what is it that we want? Why is it that we hesitate? From Britain we can expect nothing but ruin. If she is once admitted to the government of America again, this continent will not be worth living in. Jealousies will be always rising, insurrections will be constantly happening, and who will go forth to quell them? Who will venture his life to reduce his own countrymen to a foreign obedience? The difference between Pennsylvania and Connecticut, respecting some unlocated lands, shows the insignificance of a British government, and fully proves that nothing but continental authority can regulate continental matters. Another reason why the present time is preferable to all others is that the fewer our numbers are, the more land there is yet unoccupied, which, instead of being lavished by the king on his worthless dependents, may be hereafter applied not only to the discharge of the present debt, but to the constant support of our government. No nation under heaven hath such an advantage at this. The infant state of the colonies, as it is called, so far from being against, is an argument in favor of independence. We are sufficiently numerous, and were we more so, we might be less united. It is a matter worthy of observation that the more a country is peopled, the smaller their armies are. In military numbers the ancients far exceeded the moderns, and the reason is evident. For trade being the consequence of population, men become too much absorbed thereby to attend to anything else. Commerce diminishes the spirit, both of patriotism and military defense, and history sufficiently informs us that the bravest achievements were always accomplished in the non-age of a nation. With the increase of commerce, England hath lost its spirit. The city of London, notwithstanding its numbers, submits to continued insults with the patience of a coward. The more men have to lose, the less willing they are to venture. The rich are in general slaves to fear, and submit to courtly power with the trembling duplicity of a spaniel. Youth is the seed-time of good habits as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests occasioned by an increase of trade and population would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance. And while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy 
and the friendship which is formed in misfortune are of all others the most lasting and unalterable our present union is marked with both these characters we are young and we have been distressed but our concord hath withstood our troubles and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in the present time likewise is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once viz the time of forming itself into a government most nations have let slip the opportunity and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors instead of making laws for themselves first they had a king and then a form of government whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first and men delegated to execute them afterward but from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end when william the conqueror subdued england he gave them law at the point of a sword and until we consent that the seat of government in america be legally and authoritatively occupied we shall be in danger of having it filled by some fortunate ruffian who may treat us in the same manner and then where will be our freedom where our property as to religion i hold it to be the indispensable duty of all government to protect all conscientious professors thereof and I know of no other business which government hath to do therewith. Let a man throw aside that narrowness of soul, that selfishness of principle, which the niggards of all professions are so unwilling to part with, and he will be delivered of his fears on that head. Suspicion is the companion of mean souls, and the bane of all good society. For myself, I fully and conscientiously believe that it is the will of the Almighty that there should be diversity of religious opinions among us. It affords a larger field for our Christian kindness. Were we all of one way of thinking, our religious dispositions would want matter for probation, and on this liberal principle I look on the various denominations among us to be like children of the same family, differing only in what is called their Christian names. In page 40 I threw out a few thoughts on the propriety of a continental charter, for I only presume to offer hints, not plans. And in this place I take the liberty of re-mentioning the subject by observing that a charter is to be understood as a bond of solemn obligation, which the whole enters into to support the right of every separate part, whether of religion, personal freedom, or property. A firm bargain and a right reckoning makes long friends. In a former page I likewise mentioned the necessity for a large and equal representation, and there is no political matter which more deserves our attention. A small number of electors or a small number of representatives are equally dangerous. But if the number of the representatives be not only small but unequal, the danger is increased. As an instance of this, I mention the following. 
when the associator's petition was before the House of Assembly of Pennsylvania, twenty-eight members only were present, all the Bucks County members being eight voted against it, and, had seven of the Chester members done the same, the whole province had been governed by two counties only, and this danger it is always exposed to. The unwarrantable stretch likewise, which that house made in their last sitting, to gain an undue authority over the delegates of that province, or to warn the people at large how they trust power out of their own hands. A set of instructions to the delegates were put together, which in point of sense and business would have dishonored a schoolboy, and, after being approved by a few, a very few, without doors, were carried into the house, and there passed in behalf of the whole colony. Whereas did the whole colony know with what ill will that house hath entered on some necessary public measures, they would not hesitate a moment to think them unworthy of such a trust. Immediate necessity makes many things convenient, which, if continued, would grow into oppression. Expedience and right are different things. When the calamities of America required a consultation, there was no method so ready, or at that time so proper, as to appoint persons from the several houses of assembly for that purpose, and the wisdom with which they have proceeded hath preserved this continent from ruin. But as it is more than probable that we shall never be without a Congress, every well-wisher to good order must own that the mode for choosing members of that body deserves consideration. And I put it as a question to those who make a study of mankind, whether representation and election is not too great a power for one and the same body of men to possess. When we are planning for posterity, we ought to remember that virtue is not hereditary. It is from our enemies that we often gain excellent maxims, and are frequently surprised into reason by their mistakes. Mr. Cornwall, one of the Lords of the Treasury, treated the petition of the New York Assembly with contempt, because that house, he said, consisted but of twenty-six members, which trifling number, he argued, could not with decency be put for the whole. We thank him for his involuntary honesty. To conclude, however strange it may appear to some, or how unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence, some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, or some other powers not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on for ever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance, if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach, 
and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The precedent is somewhat dangerous to their peace, for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition toward them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects, we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but, like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. End of Part 5